This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, everyone. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. One thing I like to say is that food is an easy way to read the culture around us. Because almost everyone eats, but how we eat says more about our values, our planet, and our economic realities than we realize. And some recent food news headlines have had me wondering, what is up with restaurants these days? First, there's the news of two fine dining heavyweights closing their doors. And then there was a showdown in Atlanta. The same week Atlanta got its first ever Michelin Guide. Almost nobody talked about it. That's because that news was swallowed up by a visiting TikTok food critic, whose reviews sparked fierce debates and even death threats. This may be a little controversial, but I feel like not since Salt Bay has someone shaken up the food world quite like this. And all this has had me wondering if there's something in the water. If the changes in fine dining mixed with the intense interest in the fast casual food scene means something deeper. So today on the show, I want to get behind these headlines and find out why and what Americans are eating right now. To help me do that, I'm bringing on one of my favorite food critics, Jaya Saxena. She's a correspondent for Eater, and she's going to give us some food for thought. Jaya, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. I am so excited to talk with you about this because, (laughs) oh my gosh, the food news this week has had our team just in a twist. For those who don't know, who is Keith Lee and why is he making headlines right now? Keith Lee is, um, he's a former MMA fighter and he has made a name for himself Mm -hmm. on TikTok by doing restaurant reviews. He'll roll up to a restaurant, he'll send his family inside to get food for takeout, Mm -hmm. and then he will eat the food in his car and just record a video, eating the food, talking about his impressions, talking Mm -hmm. about the service, the flavor. In my opinion, is this the best burger in LA? I got it. Let's try it and rate it one through 10. It's an extremely simplistic menu. And so it's really casual, right? And he doesn't go in there because as he's made more of a name for himself, he says he doesn't want preferential treatment. He doesn't want the restaurant to be giving him free food or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe doing things extra special for him. He's just trying to review things, you know, the food that anybody else would be getting at these restaurants. But he's, got a huge, huge following now. He recently went to Atlanta, but he had some spicy words about the experience (laughs) that he had in Atlanta. He was talking about how a lot of these restaurants, you know, the service wasn't good. It wasn't what was promised. Customer service was interesting. While the people were nice, the rules they had set were very unique to me. You know, he tried to call ahead for takeout. And then when he arrived, was told that there was no takeout. Me and my family showed up and we attempted the order before we got here. We called the number they had connected on Yelp three times, no answer. We tried to order through DoorDash and it said it was temporarily closed. So when we pulled up, I sent my family in to order for us. They said on the weekends due to being busy, they don't do any takeout at all. 
there were sort of all these weird things going on. And basically, he seemed to come down on the idea that a lot of these restaurants were more about clout chasing and vibes chasing and attracting celebrities and sort of being a scene than they were about the food and the actual service. And so it basically just lit people up because you had some people who were really agreeing with him and saying like, yeah, this is a problem in Atlanta's food scene. This is something that we're all familiar with. And then you had a whole bunch of other people saying, how dare you come into our city and judge our restaurants when you don't know what it's like here and you're not part of this community. And so now I've seen, I think one of my coworkers recently posted that there are a couple of restaurants that are just using Keith Lee as a verb, that there is some <laughs> restaurant that posted a poster in their window where they were like, back in 10 minutes, please don't Keith Lee us if you like come here. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I knew of Keith Lee, like before he even started ordering from restaurants, I think maybe when his wife was pregnant, he would post like Mm -hmm. cute little cooking videos of him cooking with like one of their kids or something like that. It was like very chill. And then like, I don't know, cut to like a year or two later, suddenly he's got almost 15 million followers on TikTok. And like, he's able to leave like thousand dollar tips for like some of the service workers that he is having a good experience with. Absolutely. I feel like if he says that a restaurant is good, then, you know, these places get mobbed. These places become, you know, really, really popular. So he has this huge following and this real power to sort of influence where people are eating. I saw like bits about Keith Lee on like national morning news programs. Like this has become a really big thing. And everybody's like following what's happening with him in Atlanta. I mean, it eventually devolved and got so wild that like he and his family and some of the restaurant owners were getting death threats. It was wild. Right. There was a whole thing where one of the restaurants that he went to had a very similar name to another restaurant. So then people started going on this other restaurant's Yelp page or something, a restaurant he didn't even visit and started harassing them and leaving one star reviews and DMing them. And he had to go on and be like, I never went here. Everybody cut this out, especially for this place that I literally did not go to. And you just got the wrong name. (laughs) It's too much. I'm like, I did not know it was like lethal out here with these Atlanta restaurants. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I mean, he's doing a very specific type of food criticism, though. And I think he's kind of like, it's become somewhat popular now. And he's definitely... I think become like royalty in that space Mm -hmm. of the every man who is like getting some sort of like accessible food and really focusing on the flavor of the food and the service that he received and really giving people sort of like a very straightforward, should I eat here or not? Like, should I get pizza from this place or not? Should I eat these chicken wings or not? Which is, actually quite helpful in a certain way. To me, it feels kind of like new for food media to a certain extent, but you see his style of food criticism as a part of a longer legacy. Yeah. It's funny because I do think every once in a while people will say, oh, this is so new. The idea of somebody taking this food and just reviewing it you know, in his car is so new. And I was looking back and I was like, right, you know, Yelp was founded 
in 2004, you know, almost 20 years ago. I did not realize it had been that long. Yeah. Right. It's want to feel old. <laughs> Yelp is almost old enough to drink and absolutely old enough to vote. <laughs> and so you would see that you'd get these Yelp reviewers who suddenly had a ton of followers in a city. I think that what he is doing specifically by staying anonymous when he gets this food. And this is something that restaurant critics at national newspapers and magazines do a lot and have done for a very long time. One of my favorite reviews ever, I think a really seminal review was in 1993 by Ruth Reichel at the New York mm. Times. And right. she came to New York and she reviewed Le Cirque, which at the time was the hit fine dining restaurant in the right. city. And she has this incredible review where she went once in disguise under another name, wearing a wig <laughs> and <laughs> talked about the experience of eating there as sort of a nobody. And then she goes under the name Ruth Rachel as the New York Times food critic and has a completely different experience. Mm. You know, as a nobody, she's given a crappy table in the corner, really inattentive service, you know, food that seems like it was a little bit of an afterthought. And as the New York Times food critic, she just has almost an entirely different, extraordinary meal. Mm, that's so interesting. I did not expect the Ruth Reichel to Keith Lee <laughs> pipeline. Yeah. No, there's a lot, there's a lot of history. Hmm. Yeah, it's also notable that like all this Keith Lee news happened at the exact same time, like the exact same week that the Michelin Guide dropped its first ever yes. guide in Atlanta. <laughs> but that was essentially drowned out by <laughs> Keith Lee. <laughs> like, <laughs> what do you make of that? People got a lot of different opinions about Michelin. When most people think about Michelin, they think of really high-end fine dining. Mm. And that's not necessarily what Michelin is always commenting right, on. Right, right, they right. talk a lot about not everything that they review is a $400 tasting menu. Right. But I do think that's still the association a lot of people have with it. Mm. So if, I think for most people who are not eating that way, the idea of Michelin coming to their city is just not something that feels relevant to their day-to-day -day eating life. Mm. Whereas Keith Lee, the sort of places that he goes to, the restaurants that he focuses on, the kind of eating that he focuses on, this is stuff that a lot of people are eating like multiple times a week. Yeah, yeah. If you're sitting and eating out of a clamshell in your car, <laughs> <laughs> you're eating stuff that's affordable and that you can get to go. Yeah. This is how a lot of people eat more often than they eat at some wildly expensive omakase restaurant. Right. Yeah. I mean, Keith Lee's bread and butter is like takeout food. You see him eating yeah. it in his car all of the time. For the most part, he's eating in his car or eating it like on a couch or something like that, like in his house. Like sort right, of like exactly. Very much like how come Friday night, how yeah. many of my husband are eating <laughs> typically. And like you said, it's he's getting these takeout orders. Often it's on the go. And I think that especially the economy being what it is, you have a lot of people who are deciding that they would rather go somewhere where they know exactly what they're going to get. 
then go somewhere and take that risk and maybe be let down. Mm. My producer, Alexis, has this theory that part of why reviewing this style of restaurant in the way that he does has gained so much popularity is that like wages are down, prices are up, and people really want something affordable and reliable. Do you see that as part of what could be happening here? And, And have we seen that before happen with like popularity and food trends? You're right. I think especially now. I think the government has not officially said that we're in a recession, but it's very clear that people are feeling something's happening. (laughs) I feel like something's happening every day. There are layoffs somewhere every day. Eggs are $11 every day. They were literally $11 when I went to the store two days ago. And I was like, what? So it is interesting to see in terms of full service dining, these sit down restaurants that have everything where these trends go. And so in 2008, 2009, when we had the recession, you saw this big boom in gastropubs. And this was all about meaty, rich, quote unquote, comfort food that was still pretty affordable. Maybe it had one luxurious ingredient in it, right? Mm. I feel truffle fries was something you saw everywhere. Lobster mac and cheese or burgers with bacon or with a ton, a ton of cheese on them or brioche buns, you know, it's always stuff like that. And yeah, you know, it's that burger is more than a burger you get at McDonald's, but it is certainly still affordable for a night out. You want food that you know, and you like, and that you don't have to pay that much money for. And so that really became a huge thing. There was also part of it that had to do with, you know, a big tradition. That's when nose to tail dining sort of became really oh, and popular too. And the awful. And, yeah. And a lot of that was cost saving stuff too, where they're saying, hey, we don't want to waste any of this food. Right. That costs the restaurant money, which then costs the customers money. Hmm. So let's do something with liver and then we can hmm. sort of pass those savings on. Like with most trends, you do something for a couple of years and then people get used to it. They get bored with it. They want something new, mm. you know, feel like you look at jeans and it's like, they're skinny, they're wide, they're skinny, they're wide. They're <laughs> up to your belly button. They're down to your butt. Like it just, you know, this is just how it works. Coming out of that recession, coming out of that trend, you had people saying, all right, we're used to this style of restaurant. Maybe there's something else. And you really did see a rise in, I think, what a lot of people jokingly call tweezer food of <laughs> these fancy tasting menus and these really delicate platings. Oh, the, and that require the that tweezers, require the like tweezers to the get in there to put, like exactly, like all this stuff to just sort of get in there and make it look really fancy. And so now, again, because something is up with the economy, but also I think because trends just naturally swing back and forth, Mm -hmm. you are starting to see a lot more restaurants that are hearkening back to that gastropub tradition. There's something I wrote recently where you look at a lot of restaurants around the country, a lot of them have chicken liver mousse toasts. And it's everywhere. Everywhere. Places where I'm like, I wouldn't expect this. You're not French. I wasn't thinking. And you're definitely seeing 
fancy burgers again, fancy fried chicken. I was going to say there's chicken sandwiches everywhere. I turn around, there's a chicken sandwich. There's chicken sandwiches everywhere. And really going back to that idea of this is just a pub where you can hang out and, you know, it's not going to be that big of a deal. And even if you don't have a lot of money right now, you can treat yourself to this and you're not going to be out a month's rent. (laughs) Coming up, Jaya and I talk about what's going on in the world of fine dining and how pork belly became a must-have ingredient on menus. It's delicious, but Big Pork had other motivations for getting the bacon. Stay tuned. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money and NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. As I was talking with my producer, Alexis, when we were preparing to talk to you, I shared something with her that I tend to think about, specifically food and fashion. I think of them mm-hmm. as like the two things that you can look at if you want to understand the world around you. Because I think that like getting dressed and eating or having the inability to do those things, right? Mm-hmm. They are unavoidable. Like those are things that are <laughs> unavoidable for every person every day. You're going to put something on and you are going to eat. And if you don't, that's also something to contend with, right? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what does the average person not realize about what food indicates about us as a culture? Oh, wow. What a question. It's sort of that none of this is necessarily an accident. One thing that I always think about, bringing it back to the the 2008-2009 recession dining, you probably remember, but for anybody who wasn't an adult when this was happening, there was the, the big pork belly boom. Oh, Yes, Bacon everywhere, pork belly everywhere. everywhere. That happened because the pork industry had spent a previous amount of time selling us on lean pork. Do you remember the slogan, pork, the other white meat? The other white meat. Hell yeah, I remember that from the 90s. Yeah. On pork loin, on cuts of pork that were very Mm, lean, that sort of maybe felt like chicken, everything like that. 
So there were these huge reserves of pork belly. And then basically they had to offload this somehow. Oh my gosh. And so pork belly became incredibly cheap. And then everybody starts cooking with pork belly. Everyone starts cooking with bacon because it is the cheapest thing that you can get at the grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) That is the sort of stuff that drives what we're seeing on the menu. There's another big headline in the restaurant world that I want to talk about. Very recently, celebrity chef David Chang closed Mm -hmm. his flagship restaurant, the upscale Momofuku Co. And it's been announced that Noma, one of like the fanciest of fancy restaurants in the world, like the restaurant that it seems the film, the menu was based off of, (laughs) um, is closing its doors in 2024. I wonder what's going on with the world of fancy food. Like, what do you think is behind these closures? Does it feel connected to some of the things that we've just discussed? I think some of it is, and some of it isn't, which isn't a satisfying answer, but (laughs) I think there are a lot of things at play for a place like Noma. Noma's gone through a bunch of iterations in its lifetime. And I think that Renee Redzepi is somebody who has been constantly changing, constantly trying new things. They're closing the restaurant in Copenhagen and pivoting to sort of a direct consumer brand. They're making like vinegars and hot sauces and things like that. <laughs> Momofuku now also has a direct-to-consumer line. You know, they sell chili crisp. I right. think they sell instant noodles. So I do think that once you have an established brand like that, it becomes really enticing for a lot of people who are like, I was never going to go to Copenhagen and be able to get a reservation right. at Noma. Right. But For not that much money, I can have a piece of this in my home kitchen. And I think that's really appealing. Um, So I certainly think that a lot of these chefs and restaurateurs have that in mind when they're thinking about what they want to do. But I also think that you do have a lot of chefs out there who always just want to try new things. And then I feel like for every Noma and Momofuku Co. that has closed recently... Mm -hmm. There is another fine dining establishment that's open. You know, we're kind of like seeing the rise of the fast casual chain. Mm-hmm. And they seem to me to be expanding their reach. Like, am I wrong in that? Or is that like... <laughs> no, they, they absolutely are. There was something recently where Sweet Green expanded their menu to include sort of these dinner plates that are larger servings of protein and grains, and very explicitly said that they were trying to get into the dinner market. And I think it's something, especially with the effects of the pandemic, with maybe fewer people going into offices in their cities downtowns, I think you have places like Sweet Green thinking, how are we going to keep people eating here when maybe the main thing that was driving them here doesn't look the same as it did two or three years ago. I'm curious, in your professional opinion, are there any other restaurant or like American dining trends in this vein that you're seeing that are worth noting right now? Yeah. You know, I think one thing that I am seeing, which does sort of tie together all these ideas of casual and fine dining and are you 
less expensive, more expensive is you do have some restaurants opening up right now that are really trying to do it all Mm. and trying to be everything to everyone. You know, maybe they have a $15 pasta on there, but there's an option somewhere in the corner to add $75 worth of caviar to whatever (laughs) you're eating. And you have a lot of these restaurants now that are sort of saying, we want to be your weeknight go-to for you to bring your kids and just hang out. But we also want to be the place that you come and celebrate your birthday with 80 of your friends if you want to rent out our private back room. Mm. And we want to be the place that you come on a date night or for dessert and a drink at the bar, or you bring your parents. Just every single need that you could have for a restaurant, they're trying to cover. Yeah. And I think this makes a lot of sense, you know, especially economically, where in order to make rent, you really do have to be able to serve a wide, wide group Customer of people. Customer base, yeah, yeah. Whether a lot of these restaurants are pulling that off, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that remains to be seen. Jaya, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun to talk about. Thank you so much for having me. That was Jaya Saxena, correspondent at Eater. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Alexis Williams. Our editor is Jessica Placzek. Engineering support came from Maggie Luthar. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.